0: Hey folks, welcome back to the Dark Horse podcast live stream Q and A segment number one twenty two.
1: That's right. I inadvertently said something terrible at the end of the last live stream. I said that we had put our cat to sleep. Yes, you and did you caught say me, that. and you didn't say anything. But like, he's sitting right here. He he's sitting right here, yeah. and he is—he is very sweepy. See, there he is. There he is. Just fine. I did not mean to say it that way. I didn't even know that I'd said it that way. There we go. Let me get a little Fairfax action for the camera. All right. Um, Just jump right in. From the Discord this week, we have this question. Many adaptations seem like they would be maladaptive at first. For instance, a partial limb growing on a fish-like creature seems like it would just interfere with swimming and not confer the benefits that will eventually be selected for. How do you explain this?
0: Um, yeah, how do you explain this? Well, the real question depends what we're talking about. If we're talking about, let's say, fish, fishy fish, as we call them, since tetrapods are fish. Um, But fishy fish, that is to say, fish that look like fish, the kind of fish that are evoked when you say the word fish. Um, I'm just trying to be very, very clear about what I mean by fish. Said the fish to the other fish in front of the third fish. Mm -hmm. Who Um, would
1: totally eat some fish right now? Yeah,
0: you can go for some fish. But the the point is you don't have limbs uh in the sense of walking limbs on the fish that are the ancestors of the limbed tetrapods. You have lobes that have a purpose in the fishy fishes eco- ecology which we now know. So let's let's tell the story. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I mean some <clears throat> some of these what
0: can you bring up a coelacanth you can could say what you're going to You
1: want say, me to but... dive right now? No,
0: no, 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 not an actual coelacanth Cuz I just I
1: don't even I have to certified. I'm gonna have to go to the Indian Ocean. Yeah, like, not in
0: Indonesia exactly.
1: Uh, Jesus Christ, the things you ask of me. Um coelacanth
0: yeah coelacanth with a c
1: man my um all right and the things are not working i was i was going to explain something you've got me searching on things here well i I don't i this is not what i want to be doing
0: should i let you explain there you
1: go um i don't know this is not that interesting though um there are better fish to be to be showing but um okay (laughs) there's a Rogue thing there,
0: okay. Can you this, zoom in on all this? Oh my god! <laughs> hey, there we go.
1: I don't know which this is, where it is. I don't know anything about it, but it's that's definitely a coelacanth yeah Yep. Not the best picture I've ever seen, but it's a coelacanth um Okay, this this particular story is very well understood and there are still pieces that are disputed, but it's so well understood and it's so beautiful um, that this will be, we're not going to tell the whole story here, we'll tell some of it, Um, but it's it's a relatively easy one. There are lots for which we can we can either, we actually either have the molecular or paleontological or physiological or anatomical evidence, um, or we can absolutely put together um, the theoretical argument for what the various stages um, might've been good for. There are also a lot of cases where we won't necessarily be able to do that, but that doesn't put the lie to the story, okay? So the fact is with um, with basal tetrapods, um, which are that branch of fish, so we have. I mean, how far back even do we go? We got osteichthyes. We've got the bony os, fish. We got the osteichthyes, um, which include everything that you can think of that's called a fish, um, except for sharks, um, skates, and rays. Um, and then they're roughly, they're completely divided into the, the ray fin fishes and the lobe fin fishes. And if you've ever eaten fish or caught fish or talked to fish or thought about fish, much looked at fish in a fish tank, um, and looked carefully at their, at their fins, um, you will see indeed lots and lots and lots of very fine, thin bone, bony rays. Okay. Um, that is... In contrast to a different branch of the osteichthyes of the bony fish, um, that started to have a reduction in those rays into fewer and fewer elements, like eight, ten, um, and then they became thicker. And then those uh, those fins became more like lobes. They became sort of fleshy. They became there was there was more um, soft tissue on them rather than the the fins of ray fin fish are really just those rays and and skin. There's there's not a lot else going on there. Um, so the lobe fins um, seem to be useful um, for walking around in shallow water.
0: Um, this is not exactly how I would describe the story. First of all, the coelacanth, which is um, was thought to be an extinct lineage, was rediscovered alive, which allowed us to... It was understood to be related to basal tetrapods because it had these limb-like projections where ray fin fish have the rays. Because it was discovered alive, and there are now, I think, three species that have been found separately, um, this so-called living fossil allows us to understand what those lobes were doing. And it isn't inherently shallow water. The point is the ecology of these fish involved them walking on the sea floor, and... The... Yeah, but
1: coelacanths aren't basal within the lobe fish.
0: Right, but nonetheless, from the point of view of why would a fully aquatic fish have limb-like projections, the point is there's something in its ecology that causes those things to pay.
1: On that we can agree. Um, so I was going to go back and find the phylogenetic trees um, from my early tetrapod lectures, and I'm not I, I can't search and try to have this conversation at the same time. Um but I mean really if you're interested in this question, your inner fish by Neil Shubin is, is the go-to book. Um the coelacanth is a later but still not very um not very highly derived uh, lobe-finned fish that still lives in the water. There are also lungfish, um, and then most of the lobe-finned fish have emerged from the water. And those um, those those things, which were reduced in number from the rays, uh, into fewer became fewer and fewer. And we had early amphibians, and then of course the diversity of tetrapods. Um, but it seems the the evidence for the first emergence onto land of the tetrapods was in these very shallow, like, I I can't remember if it was the Tethys Sea, but, you know, something comparable, some very, probably not because I was probably too late, I'm not sure I have my timing right, but something very, very shallow um, with a lot of opportunity, sort of right at the edge, like right at the edge between land and water, where being able to have a little bit of musculature on your fins and basically pull yourself a little bit out uh, would have allowed for um, an for things that were previously completely restricted to water to take advantage of some of the life that was now teeming on land, because this was um an era in which there were a lot of, of insects coming to be around.
0: Yeah, I would describe it as a gentle slope
1: on the adaptive landscape. The sense see, I to thought be, you were gonna pun.
0: We might. We'll see. We'll see where this goes. But, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um but the basic point is we describe evolutionarily that innovations are like. On little foothills of peaks that get climbed by selection, which keeps refining things. And the basic point that Heather is making, which is, if you are a aquatic fish, and there is stuff to eat at the meander line, let's say where the water has washed things in and out, f- insects have died and accumulated, maybe they're, um, you know, eating seaweed or something like that, mm-hmm. as we've all seen at the shore. Then the ability to get a little bit further out of the water than your competitors. Avails you of a whole lot of food. So it's a gentle slope that then easily gets climbed The more limmy you are the more effective you are at getting further and further away from the water of course
1: and it allows for um, fluctuations in water level that will happen in a very vast shallow area that is um, that is uh, responsive to tides, as such areas would be, such that if you have some musculature in your fins, which can be accommodated by having those fewer bony elements as opposed to those many elements, uh, then you might be able to survive a drying event and get to a next area over, as opposed to just being a fish out of water. Right.
0: So what we've effectively done, as you've said, in the initial ancestor, there will be there's not going to be appendages that don't pay. Right. Actually, if you look into our book, we talk about the uh, test for adaptation in there and the Mm -hmm. basic point is those limbs or limb-like projections are made of stuff they have a complexity to them they're a vulnerability the only reason that an animal would have them is because it's paying it uh, it's paying back if you eliminate the benefit it will have them temporarily you'll have a vestigial condition but it will be quickly eliminated by selection because there's no reason to pay that cost but once you've got them like you're a coelacanth like creature that uses those limbs to maneuver on the sea floor. then the point is you're actually in a good position to take advantage of the situation that Heather points out where there's an ecological opportunity that those, that Ray fin fish can't, uh, access. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, somewhere in there is buried the answer to the question that you were asking.
1: Yes, indeed. Um, so I did find, I used to be so good with, um, PowerPoint mm. and I've forgotten uh, wow that see that did exactly the wrong thing I just wanted to show one slide here um, but I can't I want the normal view I want a good view Boy.
0: Well, okay no, no, no. there we go so yeah, I can't see
1: you can't see anything
0: yeah,
1: that's not the case, but now it's opened up Illustrator for no good reason. So um, perhaps it's time to move, to move on. move on to another question. My computer. Yeah. You know, I was... Now, this, this should be displaying to you guys. You really can't see that? I
0: can you if you
1: But you, but what? No, I can
0: always see that. All right. Let, I think we should move on okay. and solve this later.
1: I am trying. There we go. Three parts that did not quite come in, in the right, oh, here we go. They're numbered. It begins with, in this respect, so it seems like it's a continuation, but I think this is the first, the first thing. Um, In this respect, the total moral collapse of respectable society during the Hitler regime may teach us that under such circumstances, those who cherish values and hold fast to moral norms and standards are not reliable. We now know that moral norms and standards can be changed overnight, and that all that then will be left is the mere habit of holding fast to something. Much more reliable will be the doubters and skeptics, not because skepticism is good or doubting wholesome, but because they are used to examine things and to make up their own minds. Best of all will be those who know only one thing for certain, that whatever else happens, as long as we live, we shall have to live together with ourselves. Now that I've gotten to the end, I see that this is a Hannah Arendt quotation from Responsibility and Judgment,
0: page mm. 45. Amazing. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of wisdom in there.
1: That's, that's remarkable. But
0: I would say... There, I, Arendt is so good, she may indeed cover this. So I don't mean to correct her. But there are two fail safes against different failure modes one of them is the obligate skeptic who will spot nonsense as it begins to invade and at the moment this is the era of such people because the nonsense is so universal and has such powerful tools that accompany it
1: you didn't just call the obligate skeptic a failure mode
0: no the obligate skeptic is an answer to a failure mode okay right to slavish devotion to something that drives you over a cliff um but there's the other thing too right the um woke failure mode in which everything that we once understood is suddenly null and void in favor of some new fad is a problem too and the idea that you know conservatives are adhering to definitions of man woman rules of mathematics that do cause two plus two to equal four, an agreement that we had until five minutes ago that pedophilia was bad, Mm -hmm. right? Those things are a matter of, hey, wait a minute, I don't care that you're skeptical of math. You don't get to do that, right? Right. Um, So anyway, two failure modes. One is uh, a kind of absurd skepticism that wrecks all kinds of structure that uh, works and the other uh is devotion to uh tradition that causes you to to fail out of obligation i
1: think i think you've done this more cleanly um and you used to actually start out some of your classes by asking students to define three terms cynicism skepticism and faith Yep. and um i would I would argue that as I thought you were beginning to talk about, but then at the end I I grew confused again, um, that you are allowing that utter faith and utter cynicism, that is complete fealty to either that which has come before or that which the authorities say, or complete rejection of that which has come before, or that which authorities say, simply because it's authorities saying it, are both failure modes. But skepticism, being open to what is possible and uh, not assuming that something is right just because you um, think the source is cool, um, is th- is the right way through.
0: Right, a proper, a well-tuned amount of skepticism, rather than skepticism, is the answer. Right. Um, because skepticism as the answer can become sophistry, right? Where you're just throwing rocks at, at, at everything, no matter how secure it is. And so, yes, I agree yeah. that it, it's an admixture question. Mm-hmm. And you know this this goes to a lot of places. This goes to also uh, the thing I always say about it, it's not that the answer is liberal or conservative. The dynamism comes from the tension between those two things. Mm-hmm. That conservatives. Are very good at avoiding you from making new mistakes and liberals are very good at figuring out what problems might be worth solving and that either one of these alone is a disaster Um, so anyway yes and you know who deals with this pretty well you and me in our book Mm. Um, yeah we talk about Chesterton's fence and the precautionary principle which are really uh, the two hazards
1: yep very much so Okay. Next question. How do we fix climate science and stop it from publishing impossible garbage, which ignores statistics, measurement uncertainties, and the sparseness and incompleteness of the data sets?
0: Um, you know, uh, the problem is I don't know how you fix any of this without fixing the root problem, which is that perverse incentives, the systems that are supposed to it's be like solving- It's like how do
1: you fix health science? It's the same question. And economics and... And everything. And everything. Yeah. And so
0: the point is, look, I think it is fair to say you and I do not want responsibility for having been ignored in trying to point out that these systems were being pushed in a direction that they were destined to fail. Yeah. And that now... There's things you,
1: that we were talking about long before we had a... Pl- you know, Long before many people were listening to right. us. We were talking yeah, to, to tiny students. numbers of yeah. people
0: about uh, this problem. And yeah. the answer is, what, what do we do? do, we do? Um. Yep, that's a doozy. It's not obvious that we have a good way out. And to the extent that there is a good way out, it's going to be a couple of generations before it's fixed because what you've done is you've lobotomized your entire intellectual <laughs> class. And so right. who, you know, even to the yep. extent that the answer is you start having smart people teach the youngins things that are actually true and useful, Right. Well, and, and, and who actually, are those people? Where are you going to find
1: them? Right. And I mean, that's part of... <clears throat> Maybe I didn't know it at the time, but that's part of why I've been thinking about phonology, which I brought up in the first hour, two hours almost, that we did, Um, which is that, you know, this is something, this is low-tech, this has been being done for for decades into centuries. Um, It is something that you can use to, you know, track change in your own backyard, uh, and, you know, change and or consistency. Uh, it gets you in the habit of keeping track of things, which has utility that, um, you know, habits of habits of, of note-taking can become habits of mind, can become useful in all sorts of ways that you may not understand. Um, but one of the things that I mentioned in the first hour was that phenological records, off, you know, taken by amateurs, taken by, you know, people who were just enthusiastic about seeing when the first bluebird showed up, um, are useful now in tracking the, you know, the advance in many places of, or the advance or the retreat of the timing of when the frogs start calling, the birds start arriving, the flowers start um, blooming. Right? Now, this is, this is, these actually represent data sets that you can go back into and ask questions of with hypotheses that you generate later, but without awareness of what's in the data. And therefore, you can test those hypotheses by going back and looking at those data sets that pre existed you.
0: Right. It's actually, um, surely this is studied and explored somewhere. But uh, our system of taxonomy, right, mm-hmm. is Linnaean. Linnaeus was pre-Darwin, right? So you had a guy who was operating in a world in which special creation was more or less the presumed explanation for all of these creatures, and correctly and very ingeniously noting that the design of these creatures caused you to group them in logical ways. And so the point is, he didn't have the tool to understand the darwinian explanation of the relationship of these things
1: but he still saw categories
0: and we still use his mechanism because the point is when you do finally understand what caused these things to be you know degrees of similar to each other Mm -hmm. the point is oh well then all of that similarity that you noted that had a different cause than you understood is still relevant yeah the
1: only part sorry but the only you know the only part really that we've completely rejected um from the Linnaean naming system is the idea that there is like whatever it is, seven. You know, it's like there's there are species and there are genera and there are families and there are you know, yes. on and on and on. Like because, you know, there's not there's not seven nested sets for every organism. You know, there well, there are many, many, many. And uh as as I was once advised by the great Arnold Kluge, we eschew categorical rank. We
0: eschew categorical rank. And by we, he meant the three of us and a few other of his friends. But um, <laughs> Yeah. Categorical
1: but, rank being family, order, class, et cetera. Right. Phylo- but yeah. this
0: is actually one of these places where I find almost no biologist who didn't go through the uh, phylogenetic systematics and the Philosophical underpinnings of it. Understand a what the yeah. lesson here is. You eschew categorical rank. Are you saying, you know, that uh, the you know that the family and the genus of this organism are not meaningful? No, no, no. They're clades. Right. But they're not in you. You could sw- you could say you know actually this genus is really a family, and you don't change anything about the biology in switching the level right. that it's at. Nor are there seven. Yeah. Um, this is actually
1: something I explore in this essay I just posted on natural selections oh yeah the the taxonomy What, what is what is the reason for names right and you know names are about ease of communication and for that we would want stability of names and we would want the field book you know the that we pick up today to be the same names as from 20 years ago but names are also about representing reality representing historical truth and so as our understanding of history changes we expect the names themselves Uh, to change as well and that makes communication harder so we have two very different reasons to have names for things but we only have the one set of names
0: right but very few biologists understand that it isn't fair to compare the number of species in one family to the number of species in another family even though the two families may be real and the species diagnosed may be real but it's a
1: meaningless comparison
0: it's a meaningless comparison and yet you see them done in you know scientific publications and so anyway the the point is Even most biologists have not caught up to the idea that categorical rank is one of the things that we're over. Yeah. Almost nobody's over it, even though they absolutely should be, and it would make their science better. Mm -hmm. Um, But nonetheless, we are in a process in which some. and it's actually, it's a good match for what we were discussing uh, in terms of how to think versus what to think, Mm -hmm. right? The how to think doesn't isn't thrown a monkey wrench because the particulars are turn out not to be right mm-hmm. right because the point is you can reapply them
1: mm-hmm.
0: and this is a place where um you know we have an obvious upgrade that just hasn't made it to to most biologists you know for most of them it's irrelevant mm-hmm. right if you're working on uh c elegans right you're not dealing with phylogeny you're dealing with a creature that's lodged at one place in the phylogeny right. and you're not Comparing it, really?
1: No, but um, many ecologists are actually engaging with phylogeny without knowing so, and and doing so crudely, and uh, therefore making errors. Yeah. And the same is true for conservation biology. Um, that's not generally going to be, um, you know, a problem for climate science, but it's a different it's a different set of it's a different set of issues. Yep. Yeah. This person begins by stating his name, so I think he wants me to share it. Um, my name is Kevin Collins, fifteen-year flight paramedic, living in Tri Cities, Washington. Would you please have on James Lindsay to discuss the unraveling of schools into queer theory and CRT and how Marxism, um, is spreading throughout the country? Please, please, please.
0: Uh, I see no reason not to have him on. He was certainly on um, the uh, Unity Twenty Twenty.
1: A couple times, right? You yeah, had him on, but yeah. So yeah, that's pos- possible. I haven't had him on dark horse. I
0: think that's probably I think it's right. Yeah. Um anyway, yeah. Yeah. Hey James, what do you think?
1: <laughs> we also have other ways of reaching him. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um Hello from Toronto, Canada. My question is regarding COVID transmission. Is it possible for the outside of a mask that is filtered out virus to make accidental contact with one's chin and with the mask on you breathe in COVID?
0: Yes. Um, very unlikely in COVID's case, but possible, Um, but, but you you ask if it's possible and yeah, you, you've violated no known rules of the universe in that scenario.
1: Yeah. I'd be so grateful to hear how you would handle your 13 year old child telling you they are the wrong sex. I'm afraid to make things worse. It depends a lot on, um, who they are and what your relationship with them is and probably where you are like what what cultural part of the country or world uh you are in and um not just who they are now but what their what their history has been um and what your history with them has been uh it also matters what sex they actually are to some degree um because uh, a, a girl who's coming to you a daughter who's coming to you telling you that they're the, they're born the wrong sex, and they're actually a boy, um, is more likely um, to be succumbing to a social situation than a, a boy who is coming to you saying the same thing. A boy who is coming to you saying the same thing is still very unlikely to be um, actually trans, and um, if it comes on all of a sudden, um, that's a good indicator that it's um, that it's a social fiction. Um, if you have talked. If you have talked to them before about um, anything biological or natural or scientific, this will be somewhat easier, I think. Um, I'm just, I'm trying to think, it's, it's hard, I'm trying to think of what we would have said had it come to our, had this come from one of our children or, or someone whom we knew well.
0: I think, A, you need to recognize that you've been robbed of useful tools, that a civilization who has become confused about this, uh, a civilization that has become confused about this has undermined your parental authority. And I think this is part of, you know, people are, there is lots of talk of grooming and lots of talk about the abuse of that term but there is something strange about society suddenly insisting that it has the right to tell your children all kinds of things about sex sexuality gender etc and so a you're not failing because you don't know what to say you've been put in an impossible situation were it me i but would you
1: therefore want to know what is in your child's head newly from other sources besides you
0: yeah Yeah. i think the thing that i would say and again i'm not telling you that this is sufficient right maybe nothing is but i think the thing that i would say is you know there is a long history of people who have reached that conclusion and some of them turn out to feel that way over the long term But there is also a very long history of people having that sense and it going away and them being glad that they did not act on it right the number of people for whom dysphoria resolves is very high and so i think the point that the point that you want to to drive home to your child is the last thing you want to do is take this thing that you feel very strongly at this moment and make permanent decisions based on it because most of the people who might have done that are glad they didn't because it simply resolves.
1: Maybe, again, depending on your relationship with your child and who you both are and <clears throat> what other family you have and everything, um, I, this, is, this, this feels very much like a, at least a part of a good response. Um, it's, it's hard for children to understand time. And it's hard for children to understand permanence. But um, I'm thinking about that Dr. Seuss book, Oh, the Places You'll Go, Mm -hmm. which is about how much opportunity there is. Everything is ahead of you. Like You you open one door and maybe you shut it behind you, but look at how many more doors are ahead of you. And what you don't want to be doing when you're young is um, closing doors permanently that you don't have to right and we make lots of choices and they they open and close doors variously but presumably at 13 your child has been through phases and probably had um some activities that they enjoyed for a while and no longer do um or you know things things like that and uh if you were to say to them when you were really into rocks and you could have made a decision then, um, to become a geologist for sure. Maybe this is, maybe this is the wrong example, right? But, um, you probably would have wanted to do so then. And yeah, you're older now and you feel like, you know, everything now, but no one ever knows everything about what it is that they're going to want to do. And one of the things, for instance, that people want to do later that many people don't think they want to do when they're young is have families of their own. And, um if you were to act on believing that you are born the wrong sex uh, there's a very good chance that one of the many many doors that would shut for you is being able to have a family of your own someday um i say that stepping out now of trying to act as a parent who i've never met talking to a child who i've never met um i never i don't know if that would have landed for me Um, I I was a tomboy. I never thought I was a boy, but I was gender nonconforming on so many different levels. And it wasn't because of that, um, that I also just didn't think about having kids. I didn't think about marriage. I, you know, have the love of my life who I found early and that's amazing, but I didn't for me, I didn't have the princess fantasies, the wedding fantasies, the marriage fantasies, the family I I didn't have any of it. No, you didn't. I really didn't. And um the point that I got pregnant was a surprise to both of us. Um, hey, Zach, how are you <laughs> But um <laughs> But we had but but we had also long already talked about we will want to have kids by you know, by my late twenties. Yeah, I think we, I think we do. I think you know, we we do want to have that. But that was a long time after thirteen. Yeah, at thirteen. Um, you say to a kid, you know, what if, what if you want to have a family one day? Maybe that doesn't land at all. Maybe it does. For some kids, it will. There are a lot of girls, in particular, who are really thinking very much of that as part of their identity at that point. Um, but you, you know, you know you and you know your child, and you will know what kinds of things matter to them and what they are sure they care about so deeply, and probably they won't care about in five years, just because that's how things go and um, are certain of now and probably won't be certain of in five years things like this because that's the way things go Um, and what things won't land as much but there there are likely to be many many ways in um, around the sort of theme of I want to see you expanding your possibilities. I want to see you be everything. I, as your parent, want to see everything you could possibly be and have as many options as possible. And this may feel like an important real thing right now, but it will shut down your options and it will close doors for you and you will have a very hard time escaping from a decision that you want to make or a series of decisions that you want to make right now.
0: So I have another, another thought. I think this is an important topic it's worth worth the time when you are young you are often under the mistaken impression that you are involved in and this is part of the problem with not having rites of passage is that you believe Mm -hmm. that you are sort of in the adult world already and you know especially you're on social media in the same place the adults are battling stuff out
1: yeah
0: and the point is you may feel that you have no idea how to do, how to become relevant, how to do something important that will matter over your life. And I think, you know, we all wondered about that as, as young people. And you don't realize that, in fact, it would be very, very unlikely as a teenager to do anything that would be significant in terms, you know, you could set yourself on a path. But it's very hard to produce anything as a teenager that ends up mattering. And in fact, I used to say this to our college students, too. Which is you are not in college to produce stuff. the chances that you will write something in college that will matter in the world is pretty low. The chances that you will upgrade your mind so that you are capable of writing things that matter is potentially high. It's at least much higher. And so that's the thing. you should be building the tool. that's what you're doing, and the things that you're producing are practice, right? But if we don't have rites of passage and so you sort of feel like, oh my God, the adult world is full of stuff that matters and some of my peers are doing things that certainly seem significant.
1: And people are paying attention.
0: And people are paying attention. The point is, what could you do right now that would suddenly make you relevant?
1: Mm-hmm. And the answer mm-hmm. is,
0: this is something yeah. you can do to make yourself relative, relevant. Instantly, you will become the focus of a debate over what's right and whether it's self-determination, this, that, and the other. And it's a fiction, right? You're being lured into adult consequence levels. Like severe adult consequence levels, right? It's not like becoming addicted to a drug, which you can then become unaddicted to. Like that's that's an adult thing and it's very, very serious. But obviously it's not the same level of serious as I would like to decide today as a 13-year-old that I don't want a family, right? Mm -hmm. That's potentially irreversible. And so somehow I think what we need to do is convey to our kids that they are not in the place where they need to be worried that they're falling behind the relevant people. They're not supposed to be mm-hmm. Attaining relevance yet and that that pressure is dangerous
1: Yeah, it it is very dangerous and so somehow Trying to help your child find their joy and you know, it's too young for them to be expected to know their passion they may have lots of ideas and they may have no ideas about what it is they think they're interested in and both things are fine um but they can find joy you can find joy at any age and i think um in middle school in modern weird middle school there's not a lot of joy in general um but i think especially post during covid it's not post covid (laughs) um right now with the last two years behind us there is so much less joy than there was and um, grabbing attention has replaced experiencing joy as a, a primary motivator, I think. And if you can help your child find, find joy, then, uh, then that may well help. It disturbs me. This is just a comment. It disturbs me when someone openly lies. Biden's dementia, Hunter's laptop. They stare me in the face. Their eyes tell me they can see I know they're lying, but they lie anyway.
0: Yeah, I think this is why the term gaslighting, which is frankly not perfectly, it's not precise for most of what people use it for, but there are very few things that properly connote the way somebody shifts the burden that comes from seeing reality onto the person seeing Mm. reality Mm -hmm. and so the person who will lie to your face and basically leave you in a bind you know do you really want to be accusing an old man of having dementia well no nobody does the fact is this is freaking inhumane that anybody put him in the situation in which we in the public have to say we are entitled to a non-demented president right That's not a nice thing to say i do, as much as I think that Biden is a corrupt political operative a hack right I don't want to be saying about an old man that I think he's demented. I want to be able to, to have the polite fiction that he's as sharp as he ever was and not to have to do with it but you, you know you you put somebody like that in a position of power, we have to talk about it so anyway, somebody is using the rules of polite society against us Mm -hmm. where we become mean jerks for pointing out that our president has dementia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, And you're just damned if you do, damned if you don't. And the person who lies to your face knows that you can see they're lying and is putting, is basically trusting that the complexity of calling them out is so great that you won't do it. Right. That person has, that's true. Yeah. They have availed themselves of an illegal toolkit. And I agree it is particularly galling and so you know the problem is we have very few things that really evoke it and you know Gaslight this movie that I think most of us have never seen um, gets there because the idea is uh, your powers of perception are going to be used against you they're gonna be gamed and you will not know which way is up and uh, we all face analogs of that too frequently now
1: Yeah. How to get Mrs. Dorothy asks. How to get rid of bats that leave guano right by our front door.
0: Um put a plant right where they leave it (laughs) and enjoy your bats and the your plant will flourish because of all of that guano. Not
1: if you're you not if you have a protected opening that is therefore also protected from the sun and uh never gets any light at all. It will be rich in nitrogen and phosphorus i imagine guano is but uh rather poor in sugars
0: yes um agreed not every entryway is perfectly suited to utilizing i mean herb.
1: most aren't right frankly because the guano come, like falls down the wall and like right i mean we've we had a bat house we, we asked for it we had a bat house on our house in olympia um and there was boy one year we counted them coming out Little bat house.
0: It was, it was about a foot wide by a foot and a half tall, and it
1: had. No, it wasn't. I put it up. <laughs> I didn't know how big it was. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't close to square. It was much. It any... was rectangular. Yeah. Um, anyway, Zach and I both remember it being. Uh... No. Anyway. In any case, <laughs> it wasn't. It this was, big,
0: it was not deep.
1: <laughs> it was not deep at all. It was. It looked like it was deep enough to hold one bat deep, and I would have said eight or ten. I would have said, a, well, maybe I would have said about what you. I don't know, like that wide and. It would have been wise to you to say about
0: what I'm saying because that's the size it was.
1: <laughs> anyway, it wasn't just that big. Where are we? um So one night, actually. We were lying on the deck as they were about to emerge to watch them emerge, them. not underneath the thing because right. that would be wrong and you not know, with their mouths open. Um, and did we count 77 damn bats come out was of that 76
0: thing? 76 or 77. Yeah, it was amazing.
1: It was unbelievable. And previously, on previous nights, we counted like 30. We're like, how did they fit 30 bats in there? And then yeah. It just kept coming this one night. Wow. And it wasn't like we had good tight cedar shingle siding, they weren't under the siding no, it, was no, the it was in the house the back kind of, you could see them coming out of the house crazy um, so anyway, we asked for it, and there was guano and we and I did put a couple of plants this, this is on the deck, so this and it did it was um west facing um so it got nice sun even through the trees uh but most planters around. And so, you know, it caught a certain amount of the guano, and every week or two, I'd have to go in and like hose out the deck so the deck didn't rot from bat guano because we put a tiny little bat house up above. Um, all of which is not an answer. Like yeah. this, this is a this is an issue. And if you, you know if you know that you don't really want to be the kind of person who kills off bats, but you also really don't like the guano,
0: don't kill bats. Um,
1: I don't. I don't have an answer.
0: Let's put it this way: You could make the spot that the animal—is it one animal? It's probably one animal that hangs there sometimes. Um, you could make the spot inhospitable, right? You could put up a slippery piece of plastic or something, and uh, just make it so that the animal will learn to go somewhere else. Uh, you could try.
1: They say bats. Bats. Yeah.
0: Well, it depends. If you've got a space and they're getting into something, then the answer is. If they're is getting gotta,
1: into something, you don't want them doing that. You've got to anyway.
0: close off the space. Yeah. Now,
1: yeah. It can't be good for the siding, can it?
0: No. Um, <laughs> Trade offs in all things. Um, look, I don't know how many bats you got. You might figure that out. If you've got a hole in your building, you could seal the hole, do it when the bats are out. Um, I mean, this this should be obvious. Yeah. You would think, but, um, given the, uh, Let's put it this way a person is liable to do this during the day
1: right true 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 and, true uh,
0: Yep, that's the wrong moment
1: yeah you have you have run into a certain amount of uh, person thinking on bat problems right. and it is exactly it often is a photo period issue
0: let's put it to you this way person if thinking, i'm
1: awake they must be awake wrong they're sleeping they're in there now
0: person thinking on bat problems is not much better than bat thinking on person problems which is not good
1: well we actually don't know how good it is on we the other know. hand we've had none of our problems solved by bats as far as we know right they just
0: even it maybe they well
1: occasionally they take out some of the mosquitoes that might otherwise bite you. Indeed. It's, a, it's, it's not, not really as thinking far though. As it got. Yeah.
0: Um all right, the thing that I have heard, I've never deployed this myself. It's usually more an attic thing is hanging strips of aluminum foil which I, the the idea is that it interferes with echolocation. My guess is so it's, it's highly reflective. really freaking annoying if you're echolocating, <laughs> I mean, vibrating. You know, it's like every time you spoke, somebody broke out Brr. a saw. Went, ah! <laughs> right? It's that kind of thing. So, anyway, I don't know how well it works. Like, but- we
1: will find someone else's house. <laughs> thank you very much.
0: <laughs> right. Someone who doesn't own aluminum foil. <laughs> anyway, you try that. Let, let us know what happens.
1: I think that ended up being a. You know, a a B answer.
0: Oh. Yeah. That was a a great, okay. Almost a B plus answer, I thought. Okay,
1: Okay. excellent. Um, All right, let's see. Uh, Appreciated your answer last week on synthetics versus organics, but can you think of any examples specifically within food, cleaning, and medicine? Also, best books on organic living. Um, I will come up with nothing. Best books on organic living off the top of my head. Um I just I just won't be able to come up with any. Um, boy, I thought that we came up with some cleaning stuff. Like I, I think I mentioned uh bleach.
0: Bleach. But maybe
1: maybe the idea is like you want really high tech well, okay. I don't actually like it very much. Like I have my qualms about it, but you like OxyClean.
0: OxyClean, well, so OxyClean is a hydrogen peroxide generator. And basically, hydrogen peroxide is pretty good. But it's also, you know, yes, it's synthetically produced, but...
1: It's still pretty low tech. It's simple. It's it, molecularly it, simple. It's a molecule that exists. As it's is bleach mo- molecularly simple.
0: Common molecule. Yeah. Um, bleach, less so. Less simple? Less, like,
1: encountered.
0: Hydrogen yes, peroxide yes, counter, and yes. so the safety of it yeah. is better pretty good in fact yeah but um,
1: something uh, an agent whose power rests on you know the single metric of where it falls on the pH scale is still pretty simple right so i mean oh, yeah, that's a simple and, you know, gl-
0: mechanism of action but then again yeah. I mean, you know cyanide is pretty freaking simple and its mechanism of action is pretty freaking simple and it's it's not good for you
1: yeah no, i didn't i, I wasn't saying simple is good i don't make that mistake no i, I was I wasn't saying it's suggesting- not high tech
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it isn't. Um, I'm a huge fan of isopropyl alcohol um, because it's readily available. Um,
1: And I guess so. I was thinking, oh, it's alcohol. It doesn't count at all. But I guess isopropyl. um, I mean, but but why is isopropyl better than pouring the stuff you made in your still? Oh, I don't think it is on the counter. Yeah, it's not. It's just Um, it's just more precious. Like you can buy isopropyl cheaply. The problem is
0: isopropyl you can get cheaply. If you try to buy industrial ethanol, it comes with bitterant to keep people from abusing it. Mm -hmm. Um, So,
1: does that matter from a cleaning perspective?
0: um, Potentially, potentially. In other words, if you're you know if I use a spray bottle of isopropyl, right?
1: Yeah, on a counter, on a toilet, (laughs) yeah, maybe. Right. Yeah.
0: Um. But the bitter, and if you spray it into the air, you know, is it going to irritate your eyes? Okay. okay. So anyway, I like isopropyl. We could debate. You know, it's also a simple molecule. I don't know how frequently one encounters isopropyl, but I guess it's not zero um, in nature. Um. But
1: examples in food. I mean, this is a tough one. Yeah, really not. I mean, there's stuff that humans have done that seems so improbable that it's really close to impossible like how we ended up with vanilla with chocolate with coffee like each of those three species has just when you see the plant growing as as we have and you run into it in the wild we've run into vanilla in cultivation but growing um, but the other two in the wild um, boys they're just it's really hard to imagine the number of steps that got to you know a chocolate bar a cup of coffee um, and it just had to be an incredible amount of of um, trial and error but that's still human ingenuity sort of pre-industrial revolution, right? Yeah. So, you know, I remember I remember when would it have been? 10, 15 years ago when the molecular gastronomy craze happened. And I was like, man, is that a disaster? What, yeah. what, what garbage? Like, why would you do that to food? Because you can? Well, it <laughs> doesn't mean that you should, yeah. right? Uh, so, well, but let's see examples i'm coming up with are again pre-industrial like grafting so that you can have um apple trees um that that breed that they don't breed that they grow true um yeah i mean and you know
0: but i I think grafting wait that's not the way apple tree that's different grafting
1: bananas bananas and grafting those those yeah yeah because the bananas are sterile yes
0: um i don't think grafting counts right exactly that's for. that's what i said um banana is actually pretty good in terms of Bananas. artificial
1: but um, we have to explain that
0: yeah and it's not that we can't tell the other story too so the, the thing is a, a banana is a triploid <laughs> yeah. sterile a true wild banana uh,
1: triploid meaning i don't know how far back we go but so we're we're diploid we have two copies of each of our chromosomes um our sex cells are haploid you know egg Egg has only 23 chromosomes, whereas all the rest of your cells in your body, egg or sperm, have 46. Triploid means you have three copies, and triploid doesn't um, divide evenly by two, and so doesn't tend to engage, a triploid organism doesn't do sexual reproduction very effectively. Yeah, this is
0: why the banana you buy at the supermarket doesn't have seeds. Um, It's a sterile critter. And so it has to be grown with this uh, fancy technology, Mm -hmm. which has left it incredibly vulnerable to uh, pandemics of fungus, is my understanding. Yeah. And in fact, the great banana, the one that... (laughs) The great... The great banana. Is the magician from the mid-20th century. (laughs) It's like the great pumpkin, but less of a cartoon. The great banana uh, that was the one on which the banana industry... Uh, reached the world mm-hmm. uh, actually became non-viable, and I don't I don't know if it's extinct or nearly so. Mm. But we now get a lesser banana that was bypassed as a strain initially because it has an unpleasant taste note in it, which we all now look past. Mm. Um, and when it was is now I threatened. I don't know this part. Well, Sorry, Rob Dunn has done a but
1: pretty what, good exploration. Not right. when was the story told, but when when, when did Mid- we start eating a different banana?
0: mid 20th century Okay, so most
1: of most of us alive never tasted the old banana
0: I think that's right okay I think that's right
1: because I feel like that's interesting if we experienced a change in the banana we're eating and didn't notice because you know when you go when you go to the tropics I, I don't eat bananas up here I'm not interested in them they don't taste good to me you go to the tropics like oh those bananas are good yeah they are better right? they don't have to travel they're get the little, yeah, the little, whatever they're called
0: yeah. Um, but
1: little bananas.
0: Yeah, well, I have another name. And I've forgotten it. But anyway, <laughs> um, so our modern strain is also uh, apparently succumbing to a, a pathogenic fungus, I think. And the point is that would be expected because the non-sexual reproduction of these bananas does make them more consistent. But it means they're vulnerable because they don't have the kind of variation mm-hmm. in which some variants would be resistant, etc. And so yep. um, do I recommend you know, the banana as a evidence of a synthetic that is useful. A, I don't know that it quite meets the definition because it's a triploid. Um, but B, yeah. I don't know that I net recommend it. Maybe we'd be better off with bananas that had seeds and didn't go extinct as a result of pathogens. Right. So I, I, I think your question mm-hmm. is a really good one. And I mm-hmm. would say, I think we've done a very good job at coming up with good synthetics right up to the border of food. And I'm going to be surprised if we come up with a good, compelling example of a synthetic food that's actually recommendable, not only as tasty, but a good idea for you to eat.
1: And well, there is Red Bull.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Red Bull, don't get me started. <laughs> I, know. I know there are lots of, <laughs> of champions of Red Bull out there. I am none of them.
1: Yeah. Um, the other thing on the list is medicine. Um, and I mean, that's a whole, that's most, most of our modern medicines have been at least purified and titrated in the lab so that you know, the dosage you're getting, you know, it's pure, you're supposed to know it's pure and you're supposed to know exactly the amount you're getting so that you can, um, so that a, so that a doctor can prescribe, for instance, a particular dose and, uh, and then you can, you can take that particular dose.
0: no, this is this is a slam dunk. There are there are medicines. And let me give you an example. It's not people medicine, but it's proof of concept. Okay. Uh our first epic tabby uh was a very cool cat named Abercrombie, who uh he was exactly he yeah, he had thumbs, he had a great winning personality, he had he was he had dog characteristics, he was a smart, innovative cat drove us crazy every so often by going on walkabout and uh, worrying us. But anyway, he oh, was when
1: he conned, this is when we were living in Ann Arbor. He, uh, he managed to convince an old lady across the pond from us that, uh, he was homeless. And so she would feed him sometimes. Oh
0: yeah. No, he <laughs> took advantage of the same stuff that telemarketers do. But I mean, he was a more honest cat than that. But, um, but anyway,
1: incidentally, you got Fairfax to sit up and just reveal and himself briefly. As, yeah. Uh, he's, he's not worried.
0: No. no. Um, anyway, Uh, Abercrombie was a great animal. He did have a propensity to... uh, He was the cat around which the Nine Lives thing was built. He He had a tumor that nearly killed him that when they removed it, they discovered it wasn't a tumor. It was a fungus that was closing off his uh esophagus? his esophagus ah. anyway apparently got written up in a medical journal um, <laughs> we should, i don't know he if got bitten it. by something and came back with a head swollen up like a small grapefruit anyway one of the things he got was actually a kind of a common one which is he got a thyroid tumor and the thyroid tumor causes, common in cats apparently yeah causes a metabolic disorder in which the cat the thermostat gets turned way up. It starts burning a ton of calories. He became incredibly hungry and emaciated. And it was like, oh, God, this is a cat on the way out. And this is where we discovered that one of the treatments, not legal everywhere at the time. I don't know where what its status is now. But the treatment was radioactive iodine. Mm-hmm. And the idea was the th- thyroid... All of our thyroids, including human thyroid, take up iodine, which is why when there's a nuclear accident, you're supposed to take non-radioactive iodine so your thyroid gets filled up and the radioactive iodine doesn't get taken in and then irradiate the tissue next to it. But anyway, the idea is that thing that's a bug when it comes to nuclear meltdowns is a feature when it comes to treating cats with a, uh, a cancer, a tumorous thyroid. Because cats, it turns out, have two thyroids. And when one of them is overproducing, it causes the other one to shrink and basically go dormant, right? There's a feedback mechanism in which they both do their job. But when one of them is overdoing it, the other one stops doing it at all. So that's lucky because what it means...
1: But humans don't have this, so you can't do this thing You can't humans. do this thing with yep. humans.
0: It means that if you give a cat with this tumorous thyroid radioactive iodine what happens is the thyroid that's overproductive picks up the iodine and then the tissue in that thyroid gets radioactively killed it's basically um it, it is a radiation treatment for cancer locally targeted where you don't even have to have a you know a ray gun that shh, that points the radiation It at uses the... an
1: understanding of the physiology of the animal right yeah. so it's
0: just that the animal takes up the iodine it kills off the thyroid and at the point, the it, one the, the, it kills off the broken thyroid. At which point, the other one wakes up and does the job, and it presumably does more job than it would ordinarily because it's now missing a partner. But the point is, it put the cat right back into health. So yeah. I think this. And is we a, just
1: had to we had to keep him in isolation for a week yeah, so that he wouldn't radiate the other cats. We, I think we had three cats at the time. It's or, not or even us. that
0: the cat would radiate. Oh, it was his uh, instruments. Yeah. Yes. yes, you have to be very careful yes. uh, to to take care of the litter box in a way that is yes sensitive now probably yeah. it's a little too, more caution is actually necessary um but i thought it was one that of was most, amazing it was one of the most beautiful examples cheap, of remember no, it, <laughs> it was wasn't cheap we were graduate students oh my god but, yeah but, but it was but what, what a beautiful yeah. leveraging of a bizarre confluence of things right you have radioactive iodine the cat has this unique situation of these paired thyroids that it was just it was it was amazing how perfectly it took a cat that looked like he was on the fast route out of the world and restored him to perfect health yeah um it was was beautiful that's
1: excellent and i think I, i think with regard to processes actually um medicine has done a number of Of things and then of course it's 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 fixed some things and then overstepped and destroyed and I'm actually thinking about what is there's a history of like hernia repair Mm. involves sewing up tissue and then at some point someone invents this mesh mesh and then it turns out the mesh is terrible but for many decades and maybe even still most people who do hernia repairs use this mesh for like inguinal inguinal hernias right
0: they they mashed up the whole industry (laughs) Um,
1: but I don't remember like what so I think maybe you get even like cardiovascular and neurological tissue in meshing with the mesh and but then your body can react i I don't remember exactly what the problem with the mesh is, but it's it's bad,
0: yeah, it is bad, yeah, and, and it has caused so I think Ralph Nader wrote a piece years ago in which he was like, uh, don't do that mesh thing, uh-huh. go to Canada. there's a place it costs- but
1: they don't do mesh
0: by the time you pay for your trip and everything it's as cheap as getting the mesh repair in you know even including the hospital stay in Uh the special special hospital in canada but anyway yeah look it's a terrible idea to take a synthetic mesh and embed it in tissue because of course that's going to trigger your immune system it's going to trigger systems for isolating things that have become embedded Right, it interfaces yeah. with your biology. And the point is, right. this is one of these cases where you need the precautionary principle to tell you that is really unlikely to be a good idea in the end.
1: Yes, um, yes. Yeah. Um, wow, that was. What, when did we start, Zach? Uh, you can go for exactly an hour. Exactly an hour. Okay, well, let me try to get through a couple more questions here. Um, how have you regarded and or have come to regard our second amendment right, especially in the context of degeneration, into a totalitarian state
0: yes well i I wrote a piece about this, and my up, argument up at, up at the screen. time so this was in unheard spelled u n h e r d which is a british publication that that we quite like anyway, my argument was that um uh, it's very common for liberals to question the rationale of the second amendment uh because conservatives will often say that its purpose is fending off governmental tyranny and people i think sam harris has made this point in fact i know he has in an otherwise very excellent essay he wrote called something like the riddle of the gun
1: this is from way back
0: many years ago uh but anyway he questioned sam questions this logic and he says well you know what exactly do you think you're going to do with the weapons that you can buy against the U.S. Army, for example? And the answer is different. So I made the argument in my piece, which was not responsive to Sam, but it was responsive to this question, was that there's a difference between the threat that coyotes... uh,
1: Coyotes, the dogs? Yeah, coyotes Mm -hmm.
0: create for house cats versus foxes. And it's not that either a fox or a coyote couldn't kill a cat they can but coyotes can do it with relatively little damage in reverse a fox even though it could kill a cat would suffer in so doing and so they generally don't and so Mm -hmm. i think the point is we've got lots of examples in which an outgunned military force succeeded because either it had more at stake or it was willing to engage in tactics that simply drove out you know Uh, an invading army etc and i do think that um and I, i am not saying that i don't think we pay a terrible cost for the second amendment i think the evidence is mixed but that it's pretty clear that at least part of the explanation for the terrible mass shootings and things has to do with the ubiquity of guns and that we probably ought to deal with them very differently i do think it's amazing that it is harder by a lot to get a motorcycle license in Oregon than it is to pass a background check and buy a gun. Um, A lot harder. And And you speak from experience. I do. I I think this is, this is absurd. Um, And I do think that part of the answer is to recognize that the Second Amendment rights are vital, but that we don't treat them in the right way. And that basically Those who are for responsible gun ownership are fighting an endless battle over the people who are obviously wildly irresponsible, which is not a totally curable problem, but it's a largely curable problem if we were to treat them differently. So anyway, yes, I do think that there is a strong argument to be made that uh, tyranny of the kind that we saw in um, Australia and Canada Mm -hmm. in the last year played out differently in the U.S. because of the level of gun ownership and that we ought to think carefully about what that means. Um, And I think we ought to recognize that one of the implications, if that's true, is that if you go through a long period in which tyranny is not an evident threat and you begin to get the idea that it's not that your constitution is so good that tyranny will never be an issue for you again, it's very tempting to get rid of your guns, especially if, uh, um, mentally unstable people keep unleashing them on an innocent public. Yeah. Um, but the problem is at the point you need those guns because the real benefit of having them is very rare, but very important. And it comes in the form of fending off tyranny. You may not have them, which may be what happened to Australia.
1: Yes. Good. Um, there are several excellent questions here, and I'm only going to get to two more because we've been at it for a while. I apologize to those whom we don't get to. Penultimate question regarding college and rites of passage: What if we encourage one year of staunch individualism from our high school graduating youth? Now, individualism is capitalized as if that's a that's a a set thing, uh, but I'm going to assume that that's it's not meant that way. Um, I what are you smirking about?
0: <laughs> I'm trying to envision how this would
1: work. All right so i mean this my question would be what what does that mean? right yeah. what, what does that look like? um i do think that one way you could imagine it to look like unless unless there's something called like staunch individualism that we're just not aware of. um one way it could look like is the gap year that many people do take. Sometimes it's just it's misspent it's it's not interesting Uh, one of my one of my best students at evergreen actually uh, wrote a book on the virtues of gap year with one or both of his parents after he had taken one uh, which was several years before i met him as my student Uh, and he he did this is adam um, Hagler. he did extraordinary stuff on his gap year Uh, met know learned skills including spanish and met people and uh, who came to be like family whom he continued to know you know many 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 years down down the road and it was far more uh maturing than a freshman year of college would have been which he also then had right Uh, so i think there are a lot of ways to 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 do to encourage something that looks like staunch individualism that uh can be effective but also there will be a tendency to fall into old habits if you're in the same space so that's why i think i think gap years for instance are most effective when they're someplace else someplace not the same place you spent high school yes i'm actually on something of a gap century are you
0: phds yes it will take at least 100 years before getting a second one no wait before you go on though um I do think we have a new problem here, right? I think gap years are great in principle. I don't think mo- given the thing that we allowed to happen
1: to college. Yeah, no gap year assumes that college is is a worthy thing that happens
0: and that a gap between sure. them, yeah. you know, yes, a gap between them at least will not have the toxin that was in both the <laughs> high school you came from and the college you're going to. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think we've armed people with the tools to know what to do do with that time? And my guess is if you actually did say, all right, you're going to take time off that almost no matter where you sent people, they would end up spending that time on the internet, right? It would not be productive. And Mm -hmm. so I do think you need something that breaks that pattern Mm -hmm. that you will have to have armed people in advance of the gap year with some tools so that they can set some kind of goal and try to accomplish it whether that's picking up a skill or seeing uh, something or other getting somewhere climbing or whatever i don't know but that absent it it will be rudderless in a way that it wouldn't have been 20 years ago even by virtue of the further decay of the system and the elaboration of the uh the nuisance that is the internet that will attract them away from useful things
1: right No, i mean i think unfortunately negative connotation word is rudderless positive connotation word could be considered serendipity but this is a different thing this is a actually being dragged into the addictive force that is social media and or other aspects of the internet so that's not it's not rudderless it's actually you know it's a it's a bad attractor to a different to a different place and there are still places on the earth where you can't get To the internet
0: and they're worth
1: being in Uh, and you once you have spent some time in them maybe you have the power of will to impose a regular Sabbath on yourself you know internet Sabbath Uh, but it's tough and especially at the point that you are talking about fresh out of high school how do you encourage how do you encourage real independence of thought It's tough. What?
0: I have it. (laughs) Okay. I figured it out. I know. I don't know how to make it happen. And I don't know what the name for it would be. But they have to spend a year Amish. I mean, am I wrong?
1: Yes, because the Amish won't have them.
0: <laughs> I know. The and
1: there's too many of them, too. There's not enough Amish, even no, if they would not have them.
0: No, I know. I but, know, but in principle...
1: Because the mon- the Amish the, mon- <laughs> the Amish are not uh, susceptible to... But it's a great money-making opportunity. You know, they're happy to make money, but it's they're not going to do it because of that.
0: No. No. Still, though, I mean, I know I put it in a way that's absurd, but it is the right thing, right? They have to...
1: I mean i don't i don't see how that's any more operationalized than staunch individualism um it's a, it's a different it's not staunch individualism it's a different thing but i don't see i i, I continue think, not to see
0: uh, because the in light of a system an educational system that completely fails to educate how it does not create mental independence it does not create the capacity to accomplish things to build it does not con- does not produce a prototyping mindset. It does not do any of those things uh, that in effect, the only thing that is likely to tell somebody who's been a victim of that system where they actually are is isolation from all of the crutches that allow them to get by and feel capable. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in some sense I am being serious that.
1: Well, so, you know, another way I think to frame what you just said is, find a way to actually enforce beginner's mind because you know the crutches that make you feel capable but and hidden in that thing that you said is you aren't actually capable they just make you feel capable
0: Mm -hmm.
1: get rid of the things that make you feel capable so that you can actually discover and develop capability
0: right and what a tragedy that even as much as that would be a huge upgrade for most people that it would be poorly leveraged in light of the fact that what we effectively do when we send kids to school is waste their time, right? Where they could be developing the ability to make use of such a period. Most of what that period would do is reveal to them how badly we uh, betrayed them by failing to educate them when they were most amenable to it.
1: Indeed. One last question. Mm -hmm. Is there more physical and cognitive variability among men than women? Probably yes. In some regards, absolutely yes. Uh, There is some evidence, for instance, that um, IQ. Take whatever issues you have with IQ as as you will. But um, if you're talking about IQ for both men and women, um, the average is the same for men and women, but the uh, variance uh, is much higher among men. There are more um, genius and bozo men there are than there are either among women. Switch those
0: hands; it will feel less personal. (laughs)
1: i was it was just right it's high i know okay yeah um (laughs) definitely was not personal um so yeah and and then there's but there's a lot of stuff actually that um women do better than men and men do better than women and so it's not that there's greater variability it's just it's domains so sort of the forest for the trees argument there's a good uh paper that i've talked about in some piece that i've written and maybe on air uh in which uh across a number of domains uh women seem to be better at at uh details and men at gist and so you know seeing the forest and the trees women are better at um men may be better at root finding but they need the women to find the keys for them in the first place <laughs> so i have summarized the results of this paper yeah, yeah. Um, and and it's not across all domains, and of course, it's overlapping distributions. All the usual caveats. Um, so, I, you know, not not across everything is is the greater male variability hypothesis going to apply? And that's what you're alluding to here. But yes, in many cases, with regard to physical stuff, I don't know. Well, um,
0: in one, there's one simple way. Yeah, I, yes. I can
1: think of one simple way. But what are you what are you thinking of?
0: That um, in terms of the most capable men mm-hmm. physically. outside the domain that women reach but that's not
1: that's not responsive you know is is the range different or is the range bigger
0: yeah because the range is bigger in i'm not arguing that this is important i'm arguing that it's trivial but basic point is yes there will be men as totally incapable there who are effectively zero capable okay so
1: you're saying it may be it may be that it's that whatever physical feature we're talking about that might otherwise follow a normal distribution, might not for men. You might just have greater capacity over here and it might just fall off. Well,
0: both men and women will have individuals at no capable. Of course. that's So the point is, if men at their most capable are physically more capable, then the point is, yeah, it's by definition a bigger range, mm-hmm. right? Not interesting, um, but right. it's by definition a bigger range. Um, but, but on the so
1: the non-trivial example uh, way in which men will have greater physical variability than women that I was thinking of is that uh, yeah, um was that childbirth constraints, um, shape of uh skeleton, and therefore attending soft tissue and cardiovascular neurological stuff uh, in a way that men's bodies are, you know, male and female bodies are both constrained by all of the forces of natural selection onto which women have the additional constraints of childbirth, um, which, is, which is likely to make uh, women's bodies more of a type. Yep. I think maybe. I'm not positive about that. Well,
0: I mean, there are, there are two distortions, right? You've mm-hmm. got ecological optimum. You've got a distortion for childbirth applies to females and you've got a distortion for uh intra-sex competition for males Mm -hmm. both of which push you away from the ecological optimum um so and i think uh that will have that will have some implication not obvious which direction it goes but i think um the point is it pushes males it is the thing that makes males uh, more physically capable at the extreme but I wanted to go back to the, the cognitive one because mm-hmm. I think there's something always hidden in such questions. Okay. People make the assumption that when you say, "Do you know, is there more variance in um, cognitive capacity in males than females? Yes. Okay. Um, they assume that that implies that the genome creates that condition, mm-hmm. right? Rather than the developmental environment. And I'm not telling you which it is or that it isn't both. But what I am telling you is that one possibility is that males are rewarded for certain stuff that causes them to either become bozos as you put it or geniuses more often mm-hmm. and that were you to alter the culture that you that there's nothing about female brains that won't do that it's more about whether or not it is um it, there is a rewarding path built for it and so just in the same way that You know, a hundred years ago, you wouldn't have found that many women interested in, you know, uh, competing athletically as their primary thing in the world. And the world changed, and it became accepting of it first, and then it became rewarding of it, and that didn't totally erase uh, male athletic superiority in the extreme. But the point is, wow, what women turned out to be capable of, you wouldn't necessarily predict From 100 or 200 years back. And what we don't, I don't think we know how much the genome reading this is a male individual versus this is a female individual creates biases that would be difficult or impossible to overcome uh, developmentally. uh, And to which extent it's just simply that, yes, it did make sense in a prior world. Um, for women who are lower variants in terms of reproductive uh, potential uh, to be lower variants in these other regards, too, and that uh, to the extent that we've changed the rules of the game, we may discover all kinds of things that seem genetically based, just simply weren't.
1: Yep. Very good. Uh, I, think, I think we're there. I think we may be there. I think we're there. We will be back again next week, same time, same place, and after that it's going to be... Much more variable. Much more variable. You think Zach's gonna give us our end screen? I think he is.
0: I suspect he will. Yeah. And I think,
1: has. I think <laughs> I think I think he has and will. Um, so thank you for joining us as always. Uh, and do we, we are we are very curious about the flatlining of the subscriber count on both of our channels this channel well, all four i guess um youtube and odyssey main channels and youtube and odyssey dark horse podcast clips channels um exactly as we are seeing greater and greater numbers in all of the other uh domains so it seems it seems suspicious and uh we do encourage you to subscribe if you uh if you feel like doing so and especially if you did before and did not unsubscribe yourself knowingly and have been somehow unsubscribed
0: Resus- resubscribe to our channels More there. nope I just think it's a good policy and okay covers how you ended up unsubscribed
1: yeah um all right lots of other stuff to say but we'll save it for next week all right how about that um, <laughs> okay <laughs> be good to the ones you love eat good food and get outside
0: be well everyone